Hello, welcome to Moments of Clarity. My name is Matthew Sortino, and with me is Toby Kent. Hey, Matt. Hey, everyone. Toby, welcome to 2023. 2023. Boom. We've landed. How are you feeling? Yeah, good. I think not just because I've had a holiday, which we might touch on, but in in the midst of all kinds of things not right in the world, in other ways on a personal and perhaps smaller scale, it feels like the most positive start to the year that we've had in a few years, just coming out of pandemic and, and so on. Fires, pandemic, you know, everything that's been going on, it feels like a normal, let's just keep it at touching wood normal-ish. here. normal yeah. for us at least. Um, parts of the world, Auckland, you know, there's parts of the world with not a, not a great start, but Melburnians, um, we're doing okay right now. So I got married, Toby. Over again? The, uh, again. <laughs> My fifth. No, um, <laughs> married on the uh, late December. It was wonderful. My brother's no. down from Sweden, had the whole family around, you know. And was uh, it everything that a marriage and wedding should be? It was everything. In terms of, yeah, nice. Uh, no, it was really lovely. And, it was beautiful. Yeah. yeah, we had a great time. So that's kept the uh, old Italians off off my back about, you know, two kids, no marriage, what's going on? Different mothers. Different mothers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the other the other two, Toby, that we don't You're mention. Right. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. No, here it is publicly. Ah, well. Um, <laughs> and um, I'm also, over these this break, other than, you know, getting away for a week and enjoying the family, I've got myself into barefoot running. Um, have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've tried to. I've been in orthotics after my foot injuries and all of that. Yeah. And I've just never been able to get strength through the well lower legs and uh, just in pain when I wear non-orthotic shoes. So I went yeah. to a new physio, and um, we're working on rehabbing with some barefoot running. So wearing the barefoot shoes or being barefoot, strengthening the calves, the Achilles. But let me tell you. I can't walk today. My Achilles are just in excruciating pain and tightness, but it's a good thing, apparently. Pain is good. It's retraining my body, my brain, my, you know, everything, the way that my body works. Um, So, yeah, doing these runs and jumps, and uh, I think it's really interesting. Maybe one day we'll we'll delve into the the world of barefoot running. Yeah, have you read, is it Born to Run? There's a, there's a, very, a book that got very popular about a decade ago. All right, no, I haven't read it. If I can ever remember the title, I'll give it to you. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I, uh, it's a bit of an experiment right now. We'll see how I go, but so far, I feel good. Except for the really painfully tight Achilles. But then apparently, it's good. It means I'm I'm using a muscle or a tendon I haven't been using for a long time properly, so it's strengthening up for sure. Um, but enough about me, Toby. I want to hear about your trip away. You you are you were making me jealous with the images that were flying through from Kenya. Yeah, uh, it was uh, pretty exceptional on a, on a few levels. And one of the things we haven't done is to acknowledge country. And so, before we go any further, I'd just like to acknowledge that we're recording on lands of the the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Uh, first. Nations, peoples here in Australia, or where we're recording, and pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. And of course, should we be fortunate enough to have any listening? And the reason that I do that 
acknowledgement or your question sparked my remembering of it is is really interesting uh, i think being in kenya which has you know, many and, and ongoing problems but it has been an independent country since 1963 and it really brought home something that i don't think we fully acknowledge in australia some people in australia acknowledge this but i don't think that collectively it's sort of widely considered or, or recognized but it really made me feel that australia is an ongoing colonial country and it's just the reality that we because the majority of us one way or another are part of colonization you know not not actively but just by dint of being here that was uh, that was interesting and then there's another element for me because of the bits of work that i have done and ha had the privilege of doing with aboriginal community members just the concept of connection to country both our responsibilities to the environment our reliance upon it uh, and that deep sense of, of uh, an emotional and, and broader connection to the land on which we're living and being. The perverse thing for me is that awareness has actually made me feel that while I intellectually appreciate the beauty of the Australian landscape, I don't feel that connected to it, not in that deep sense of this is my land. And even though the land of East Africa is equally not my land. For whatever reason, I feel very connected there. That plus the fact that I was having a family reunion uh, and seeing, meeting my, my brothers, my nephew, my brother's son for the first time. Uh, he's three and a half and seeing my family really for the first time since 2018. So it was, uh, yeah, emotionally really rich and and... And not just emotionally, I mean, it was amazing. We were there, so many of the animals on the uh, in the Maasai Mara, sort of part of the, the, the savannah uh, that runs from Kenya through Tanzania, had given birth. And so there was this sort of richness of life. And we had them were um, up in a place called Laikipia, a much more arid part of the country. But again, just stunningly beautiful. And yeah, anyway, so... All in all, just uh, yeah, wonderful to be back there, and and also giving sort of yeah pause for some some good uh, and generally very positive reflection. Yeah, and I know that you've talked about it a little bit in the past, but what is your connection to Kenya and East Africa and that region? Yeah, so as I was saying, in some ways it's it's quite loose. I, th I think part of the the sort of bit for me connecting with it is probably just the fact that I was there at quite formative parts of my life. So I taught in an orphanage uh, in Ethiopia for a period of time when I finished school. I worked with a friend of mine who set up Ethiopia's first eco-tourist camp uh, a few years after that. And then in my kind of mid to late 20s, spent time initially as an intern uh, at the UN working on housing programs. And then that evolved into me building a, a small consulting business out there. And alongside that, my parents were coincidentally um, ended up being there in one way or another for a certain part of the overlap. My father worked in Somalia uh, with the United Nations, then officially had to be based in Kenya. 
my dad. Oh, who we had as uh, a guest uh, on the show a few mm. episodes back, but his specialism was disaster emergency relief, so he tended to be in non-family postings. So being in Kenya was the first time the family could go, and so my mum took early retirement and went and joined him. But I ended up staying in Kenya for about almost 20 years, yeah, and ended up marrying, remarrying. So she genuinely had two husbands, not at the same time, unlike your second wife, which was a bad <laughs> joke at the beginning of the episode. Um, but, yeah, and so my stepbrother still lives there uh, and, and his family. And uh, so in some ways, as I say, in some ways it's loose and in other ways there's some reasonably deep and ongoing connections. Yeah, amazing. No, that's brilliant. And I know that you met some people along the way that we might even uh, get on the podcast one day. Yeah, I hope so. So two of the people I mentioned, one runs a, a essentially a, a, it's, it's kind of a, a, a housing development. He's a property developer. It just happens to be around very strict uh, conservation guidelines uh, out again in the Masai Mara um, in the south of Kenya. And the other person is actually from when we took a bit of a detour via the UK, uh, an old friend of mine who's ended up as the global head of Metas of Frontier. Fantastic. Well, what we're going to do now is introduce our guest for today. Um, I mean, although we love talking about ourselves and to each other, Toby, it is all about our guests. And today we were very lucky to have a discussion with Sue Barrett at the end of 2022. You know, she gets to start the new year with us on Moments of Clarity. But what an incredible, incredible interview we had with her. Just um, a few things that I take from this conversation. First of all, how much experience she has in a lifetime almost of being ethical and also sort of sales-driven or persuasion-driven, but in a very ethical and sort of wholesome and honest way. And that sort of comes through in everything she discussed um, in her life, you know, that she refuses, and we'll, she'll get into this a lot in the in the podcast, but she refuses to allow people to put her down or bring her values away from her while also being really sort of empathetic and um, and kind. But she's got really strong values that, that come out and, and allow her to stand in her truth. Yeah, and I, I think... Again, Sue will describe this better in a few minutes, but Sue is the founder of a company called Barrett Consulting. So to your point about sort of ethics and so on. So, and Barrett Consulting actually was set up, and I don't know any other agency that is a sales and sales coaching business built entirely on ethical sales uh, and how to sell things in responsible ways. So very much as you were saying. And then, uh, again, some of them really sort of, rich parts of the the conversation that we'll have with Sue are how she has built on that to really have this almost second career or parallel set of undertakings around some quite deep and impactful activism. It's a really rich conversation and I'm really grateful to Sue for some of her, her openness uh, in this. It's probably ethical or responsible of us just to mention that there is a bit of discussion of abuse and attempted abuse and so for anyone who thinks uh, they may be triggered uh, because of their own experiences of 
in this case, frankly and sadly, men doing terrible things, acts towards women, that yes, that please uh, do be alert that at about 45 minutes to an hour in, uh, we cover some uh, quite specific and, and, and somewhat graphic topics of that from Sue. Yeah, and and a big thank you for Sue for being so honest and open about, you know, her experiences. And I guess coming out of that, you know, a couple of things that Sue was part of, um, and she'll go into this very deeply, is, you know, the March for Justice um, that occurred in, in Canberra and across Australia and even across the world, I think, in the end, in some, in some cases, where there was a march of not only women but men and children, adults, everyone to, to march for justice for women, especially after the Brittany Higgins situation um, that occurred here in, in Australia. She also was a co-founder of The Voices for Goldstein, and then also Zoe Daniels, campaign manager for the federal election that we had last year. It seems like it was forever ago, but also yesterday at the same time. So um, she'll go into those things, but it's just amazing the work that she's done. And we'll let her talk about it. We should, without we- further ado. Ladies and gentlemen, Sue Barrett. Sue Barrett. <laughs> Sue, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Lovely to have you on. To get us started, Sue, can you tell us in the audience a little bit about your professional background and a little bit about some of the the key moments, I guess, in life that led you to the place you are professionally today? Oh, gosh, it's a bit of a circuitous route. (laughs) Um, I actually have a science degree from Monash University in medical science subjects such as pharmacology and immunology. And I did that because the boy next door, who was like my older brother, got into medicine and I just didn't know what to do. And I'm sort of a generalist. I like art, I like music, I like science, I like language, I like sport, you know, so I'm kind of a handy person to know. So it's very hard from a career perspective as to where to find, you know, a career path. Um, I got into science at Monash, did that, and then still didn't know what to do. And then a, a boyfriend's father at the time who was a GP said I'd make a good drug rep, and I think he meant a pharmaceutical representative at the time. So <laughs> I fell into the pharmaceutical industry in sales. Um, I should back up a bit and say I grew up in my father's timber business. So I grew up in a family-run business and I was very always very interested in business and my dad was um, very honourable, had a great reputation, did a lot of work on the front line, so sales, sales leadership and those kinds of things. So it's kind of funny where I found myself now professionally that I've kind of become... Um, I don't know, the David Attenborough of salespeople, you know, (laughs) studying all sorts of things about sales, sales strategy, people, processes, but particularly with an orientation around ethical, human-centred sales practice. Because when I became a pharmaceutical rep, um, I really hated selling because all they did was teach us how to show up and throw out product information to doctors, and I found that to be a very, you know, it was really difficult to have conversations with people and actually help them. Whereas when I reflect back and I look at my dad, you know, he just said, you're just there to help people. Just find out what they want and see if you can help them, which is kind of 
you know, we're, humans are born curious, we're born helpful, we're born for fairness, right? So this is part of our DNA. So it always kind of made me feel really strange. Why would you teach people this product knowledge and then just shove it in people's faces rather than understanding what was important for them and then curating that information to help them, you know, and then see if you could help them? Anyway, I was 21. What would I know? Like, you know. And so um, I ended up falling into the uh, recruitment industry where I started to put forward people in sales and sales leadership roles across the technical, industrial, medical, scientific markets. And that's where my little research brain, because I've always been a curious creature, but my research brain started to notice patterns. And it turned out that my best placements for my clients were people not from the industry. What I was doing was actually seeing, at the time I was intuiting it, I've since mapped it with my team, I was intuiting what good performance looked like because my best place placements were people not from the industry. And I'd say to these sales leaders, I go, listen, I know you want industry experience because they all ask for that, but I actually um, found someone and I reckon they'll be amazing. And um, so it was a bit like, you know, trust me, I know that I know what I'm talking about, but I couldn't explain it. So after a few years in recruitment, I ended up switching out and I started my business on the 9th of January 1995 with the express purpose of really looking at what does good selling look like? Um, How do we sell better rather than just flogging more? What do good systems look like and strategies and stuff? And whilst, you know, back nearly 28 years ago, I wasn't as clearly informed as I am now, um, I really became inherently curious about what does good look like in this space and why does it have such a bad reputation? Why are so many people so frightened of and scared of selling? You only have to mention the S word and a lot of people, you know, are triggered by it and have all these sorts of challenges. So, you know, for the last nearly 28 years, my unofficial PhD has been in this area And I have discovered so many interesting and captivating things. And I have to say, I've also been very proud that we've helped liberate people from their sales anxieties and really help uh, people find opportunity and really develop their capabilities, all sorts of people, and not just people who call themselves salespeople, but many people who've discovered the agency of selling, the ability to be able to ignite opportunity and and create a prosperous future for themselves and their families and their companies and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's been a very interesting journey to study that. And then I have applied this learning to all sorts of other interesting ventures, which I'm happy to elaborate on. Does that give you a bit of a base of where I've come from? It it certainly does, Sue, and... We'll definitely get into some of those other ventures, which is absolutely one of the reasons why we asked you on. But also, before we move on too much, because I think the work that you do through uh, Barrett Consulting as a an ethical sales agency is interesting in and of itself, and you've touched on some of those things. But when Matt set up Moments of Clarity, it was really around wanting to, his wanting to speak to people who align their values with their actions. And so it's really easy. I mean, interesting that rather than saying, ah, sales is just about, you had a fabulous uh, alliterative phrase, and I forget what it was. Oh, showing up and throwing up product information. Showing up and throwing yes, up. Yes, that was yeah. the one. It wasn't alliteration, yeah. it was rhyming. There we go. <laughs> but yeah, but most people would go, sales is not for me. Mm. 
um, which is kind of your point. But what was it about you and your background that you went, it's not that sales is wrong, it's how we're doing it that's wrong. And not just that I've got that understanding, but I'm going to actually create something to help fix it. What was it about that you saw in it and what was it about your background that made you want to be that change agent? I found myself in, in the previous jobs that I had, I actually found that I was actually really good at listening to people, sorting out stuff and helping them get traction with whatever they wanted to do. And I really liked solving puzzles and working collaboratively with people. I also found it a bit challenging, like many people, to actually ignite opportunity. This is the thing that most people are scared of, is actually what we call prospecting in sales. It's the, I know who I need to talk to, and once I get in front of them, I'm probably not half bad. It's the how do I get in front of them that most people, you know, have a lot of anxiety about. And I was very fortunate when I was about 27, 28, to do a particular assessment um, that actually maps and understands where your learnt attitudes and behaviours are around these anxieties. And being very science-oriented, I didn't just take it at face value, I really studied it very deeply And then I discovered how liberating this was because a lot of these anxieties are learnt behaviours. You're taught them. You're conditioned to think this way. And we know social conditioning affects everyone in some way, shape or form. And we have a saying in our business, watch who you let near your mind. Because humans, you know, are notorious for, you know, getting stressed and, 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 and freaked out by bad news. Um, what they're not very good at is being discerning and working out, is this real or is this just an imagined thing? And can I actually, you know, get evidence behind it to back up other decisions? So I don't like being um, bullied or tyrannised by prevailing views and attitudes. That was actually written on my final school report from a boys' school. I went to a boys' school that went co-ed and there were eight boys to one girl when I first went to that school. So I jokingly say that that was my introduction to corporate Australia. But um, but I learned a lot of stuff about how to hold my ground and things like that. But I also started to think, well, what holds people hostage? What keeps them from, you know, being able to achieve the things they want to achieve? What actually stops them from actually moving forward and holding themselves back? And there's a lot to do with psychology, but also biology. It's interesting about the, if I talk about the biology bit, um, that fear of rejection that a lot of people experience, you know, or don't want to experience more so when they think about calling someone, even a friend sometimes they won't call them because they don't want to be rejected. That actually has its roots in our um, biology, in our primitive biology for survival. Back in tribal days when we actually lived together, about 150 you know, people, a tribe thereabouts, the last thing you wanted to do was be ejected from the tribe because that was a death sentence for the majority of people. And so what happened was that um, when you were little, you're quite fearless. You know, these little three- to six-year-olds and stuff, they're quite fearless, right? They're out there, they'll tell you like it is and all that kind of stuff. But what starts to happen as you have to get along with people is you get shushed. You know, don't say that to Auntie Fran. You know, she might get upset, so shh, don't say that. Or don't speak to you until you're spoken to. All this conditioning that we get, right, that basically tells us to shut up. 
because we're supposed to get along with each other. And fair enough, if there's 150 of us in a tribe and we're trying to survive. But we've moved on from that because if you've ever been ostracised by someone, okay, if you've ever been told off for doing something, and all of us have in some way, shape or form, not only psychologically do you go, oops, I probably shouldn't do that again, you actually get a physical sensation, a pain somewhere kind of in your chest, sort of guts area, and it feels like shame. Because when we're ostracised, we're being shamed. So we've been told not to do that again. Now, as I said, this is a very primitive response, and not that we shouldn't feel shame appropriately, but in many cases, this fear of rejection is this feeling. So guess what? In order to avoid that, because biology gave us this physical feeling so that we really got the message. So in terms of selling and prospecting and putting yourself out there in front of people with the potential, in many cases, of being rejected, most people go, no, nah, not doing that. I'm not going to put myself in that awful position. However, if you learn how to do that well and you learn how to use language and you learn to become other-centric, so you actually understand where someone else is coming from. Empathy is incredibly important. Empathy doesn't mean you agree with someone. Empathy just means you can understand someone where they're coming from. Too many people are waiting for their turn to speak. Too many people do not put the effort in to be otherish. And so can you imagine kind of combining all of these things together and being able to understand that I've got something to take to market I think it could help people. I'm actually really good at what I do, but I'm really anxious about making contact with people, so I'm not going to do it. I'm going to hopefully somehow they'll read my mind or find my website or, oh, that's right, we'll do marketing. That's it. We'll just do marketing, a bit of marketing. Now, marketing is important and very helpful, but it only talks to groups. Sales talks to individuals. And many businesses or people who start a business, I always ask them the question, do you have a market? Is there enough of a market for what you do? And if there is, great. But if there's not, it's just a hobby. And can you sell? Because the thing you've got to be able to do is get out there and start talking to people and ignite opportunity. So there's all sorts of things at play, both my biology that may be telling me not to put myself in danger and be rejected, um, but then I actually want to do something well and I want to be really good at what I do, but I'm having this wrestling match with myself. How do I? Anyway, I try to help people understand how to address all of that and how to actually take all the amazing things they can do to market and actually do good work out there. Because if you're not, someone else is, and their work may not be as good as yours. So it's a complex web of all sorts of things, biology, um, psychology, market strategies, market segmentation, value propositions. I mean, it's a very busy, variable, complex world that we live in, but I help people navigate that to find out what works best for them and how they can, you know, get traction and results. And on it being a busy and complex world and you're helping people to get traction and results, I mean, you've outside of your business, but building from all the skills you've just described and your 25 years of non-PhD, PhD study, you've been involved in some incredible movements of re recent times. Uh, I believe from memory, so it started with the March for Women, which you had a really profound role in, in, in setting up. Is that right? Yeah, well, actually, 
the things that I can talk to, but I can tell you the origin of where they came from, was March for Justice that happened on the 15th of March last year in 2021. Also, I became involved, uh, was one of the co-founders of the Voices of Goldstein, which I can talk a little bit about, and also they ended up becoming Zoe Daniels' campaign manager for the federal seat of Goldstein here in Melbourne uh, at the May federal election this year, which was, I'm happy to probably could say, is the biggest sale I've ever made in my <laughs> life, that's for sure. <laughs> it was incredible. But where it all kind of started um, is that I've always been about social justice. I've always been about fairness. I've always been about helping um, people do good work. I've always been about ethical business practice and also flushing out unethical self-promoters and people who are looking for victims, not prospects. I have a bat radar for this and I want to equip as many people as possible not to be taken advantage of by these scurrilous people. Um, sadly, some of some of these people are running companies and countries, but nonetheless, if we can recognise what they are, um, we can actually help um, protect ourselves against them, but more importantly, actually um, be an alternative to them. That's what's really important. So this agency, the selling gives us agency, this ability to get out there and do good stuff. And uh, But also, you know, people can use it for the, you know, not so good stuff as well. So we've got to be able to be up there and make sure we're an alternative um, networks are important. Um, one of the reasons I, in fact, one of the main reasons I got involved with all of the things I just mentioned was because of Twitter and my connection on Twitter. I've been on Twitter a long time and you start to find communities and, and groups out there who care deeply about social justice, about representative democracy, about women's equality, about climate action and all those sorts of things. So Twitter became, for me, a lifeline um, of connection to amazing people, really intelligent, smart, capable people, despite what the mainstream media may say about Twitter. And yes, there's some dorks on Twitter and some nut jobs and things. There is an incredible community of incredibly intelligent, capable humans who absolutely care about doing good, good doing good stuff for the common good and combating these unethical self-promoters, these charlatans, these people who are out to destroy us and destroy the planet. So, um, you know, no pressure. Um, we're, in, <laughs> we're in there sort of going about that. So one of my mates, Denise Chavelle, who's in North Sydney, we met on Twitter about 10 years ago and, um, you know, we'd have our moments of existential crisis and things like that and chat to each other about stuff and what we could do and, you know, and just wherever we went. So... We really started to get traction, she and I, together, or at least decided we have to do something. At the time of the dreadful 2019-2020 bushfires that were basically scorching Australia, you know, burning us to a crisp, literally going up in flames. And we just went, right, this is it, we've had enough. We've had enough of ScoMo, we've had enough of all of this crap, we've had enough of people, you know, taking us for granted and we've particularly had enough of women being treated like crap. And so she and I both said sort of early 2020, listen, we've got to do something. Do you reckon we could have a crack at this sort of community-backed independent stuff? You know, you do it. She said, I'll do it in North Sydney. And she said, you've got to do it in Goldstone. And I'm sitting there as an individual going, okay, <laughs> where do you start this thing? Anyway, you've just got to be out there and have messages and stuff. So um, in late uh, 2020, Denise introduced me to a woman called Katerina Gator who uh, was here in Goldstein and about 
I don't know, 15 of us got together via Zoom and we decided that we would have a crack at seeing if we could put up a community-backed independent candidate at the next federal election. And so I became one of the founders of Voices of Goldstein. And I used my um, sales strategy and client engagement work to help build a website, messaging, and we started doing kitchen table conversations. So we started to get going. Anyway, on the um, 15th of February, when the dreadful story about Brittany Higgins broke, um, I think on the project, on the yeah, that night, I don't know, I just, you know, I've been in business a long time, that boys' school business, you know, you had to duck and weave and dodge as a woman, all sorts of crap, and you had to stand up for yourself. And, um, and I know this doesn't sound terribly pleasant, but my dad had three daughters and he was really worried about, he was a, he was a great sportsman, good businessman, and he, but he was very, he was a pacifist. He didn't want to fight. He didn't want anyone to fight, but he did say to us, so if you ever find yourself um, in a position where you can't talk your way out of it, you know, you're allowed to hit them, you know, you can hit them. And he said, just make sure you keep your thumb outside your fist so when you actually belt them, you don't break your thumb. I mean, the things you remember. And I've had to hit a couple of people over my life to protect myself To, And so when that story broke, I lay there um, awake all night thinking of all the things that me and my friends and colleagues had had to deal with, you know, through sexual harassment and assaults. I mean, I don't like saying it, but I will say it because it needs to be said. I've had to talk or literally fight my way out of seven sexual assaults in my life. And I don't want anyone to have to go through that, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm a fighter. I will stand up for things. And so what drives me is um, being able to speak up and, and and be taken seriously and to get action. So I, after a sleepless night, released an article I'd written in 2017 called No More Harvey Weinsteins, Please, and it got picked up by 2CC Canberra and on the Wednesday evening on the Drive program, and as you know, that's a pretty good spot to have, and they interviewed me and asked me to actually speak about um, the Prime Minister, Morrison, and his pathetic um, response to this situation, which is, you know, what would Jenny say and so on. So I very professionally tore strips off the Prime Minister and basically said this is really, you know, abhorrent. And I have to confess that the um, uh, radio announcer who was interviewing me was very supportive. So um, he was, you know, obviously standing, as many were and are, on the side of women and this awful culture. I mean, I don't know if you know, but at the time um, the um, Parliament House Canberra did not have to abide by the Sex Discrimination Act of 1984, that we were the first in the world to produce something like that back then, didn't have to abide by it, and they have no HR policy or team in Parliament House Canberra. It's just unfathomable. Anyway, that radio um, uh, piece got shared on Twitter and Everyone was kind of in a really flustered state and everyone was going, we've got to do something. Kind of you see all this noise on Twitter. And on the 28th of February, Janine Hendry tweeted in disgust, as we all were disgusted, um, how many people will it take to surround Parliament House Canberra? And someone came back and said, 4,000 if we hold hands. 
Anyway, it turns out you're not allowed to hold hands around Parliament House Canberra. So we decided that we're trying, I mean, I, I was you know, that, was, that sounds like an HR policy would have to yes. be. And they don't have an HR department. So. No, that, that was a security Scary. policy, not HR at all. So that was security. Sorry to tell you. Yes, exactly. Um, but then what happened was uh, on the Monday, the 1st of March, someone said, can someone build a website? Because the plan was to get as many people to Canberra on the 15th of March, which was a Monday, because that was the first day they were back sitting at, at Parliament House Canberra. So I put my hand up and said, oh, we can do that. So York's my partner. He actually um, could build the website and I wanted to do the messaging because this is what I talk about with my clients. You've got to have really great client-facing messaging. Anyhow, we met with Janine on the Tuesday morning, the 2nd, and uh, I said to her, look, we can build a website. We'll have it up today. Can I do the messaging? I want to make it human-centred. This is not just a women's issue. It's a human issue and so on and so forth. And she went, go for it. Because, I mean, you can imagine just these people were coming to this, the gravity it created. So I was in charge with, with Yorps to get the website up and running and to get the messaging there and then help with strategy. And, and then there was about a core of six of us and then, events started to come on we want events in melbourne we want events in this anyway it just went nuts so long story short we ended up with um 110,000 people turning up to 200 locations around the country including very conservative regional parts of australia i was in charge of customer service as well i was getting all these emails coming in we had social media and we had to moderate that because it was pretty nuts but i looked after all the website traffic and things and we had um so many people write to us men you know women people from very as i said very conservative parts of the country saying look we really need this here it's we're desperate for it and so on we managed to get i think nearly eight thousand people to canberra and our largest event was it was we're in melbourne sydney and brisbane with you know between 12 and fifteen thousand people rocking on a monday at lunchtime i mean you know people took time off work the website itself on the Saturday before the Monday event got over 800,000 hits from Australia alone, 30,000 from the US, sorry, 40,000 from the US and 30,000 from Europe. On the Monday, the website got over a million hits. Um, the website, um, it, sorry, in terms of media impressions, we got over 7,000 unique media impressions around the world. Um, including um, NBC, sorry, BBC, um, Time Magazine, you know, Washington Post, I mean, New York Times, every single Australian mainstream media outlet from radio, press and TV, and it went nuts. And it was one of the most amazing experiences. We flew into Canberra on the Saturday to get set up. Um, I will tell you that the website was um, being hacked and by certain parties, I won't name, but people that you would, wouldn't expect to do it, but they were trying to bring it down because they didn't like what we were doing. And I, I won't ask you to name names or parties, but, I mean, are we talking kind of quite mainstream political parties? Correct. Wow. Yeah. Um, and Jobst kept the whole thing. He's very security conscious, but they tried to take down our petition, all sorts of things. He basically sat there. We were in Canberra. Can imagine we've, he and I have commandeered the dining room table. He's got his laptop. He'd already set up all the servers and everything and made sure. I mean, as I said, he's very clever. He set everything up, but he basically sat there just making sure, making sure, making sure that that website stayed up. I responded to about over uh, 500 emails coming in 
uh, you know, from people writing. We kept putting new sites up, new sites up where you could go because he kept to keep updating the sites. It's all the locations were just popping up. Even on Sunday afternoon before the event, I'm getting calls from or emails from Warwick and Orange, you know, in New South Wales and Queensland. Can you, can we have a march? Yeah, just go for it. Like it was just nuts. We had a really interesting situations occur because we were trying to be, um, you know, um, I mean, the Prime Minister absolutely hated what we were doing. But on the day, if you could imagine on Monday, it was a bluebird sunny day. It was so beautiful. And we had stayed nearby. And so we'd managed to get little hashtag March for Justice T-shirts made. And we went down to Officeworks and got some lanyards to try and look official. We even made a kind of, kind of a businessy card to stick in it. So that when we arrived, because we had a great crew on the ground, a great Canberra crew on the ground who set it all up, I'm very grateful for them. But when this little cohort, this little posse of sort of the central operating team sort of was walking up to um, Parliament House, you know, as we were walking up there, people started coming out from the streets and with children and men and women and coming on and they would see us with our T-shirts and they go, are you the organisers? And we go, yes, yes, we are. And they went, thank you so much. And they were in tears and they were hugging us and so grateful, oh, my God. And, like, it was just amazing because we had no idea how many would turn up. And as you're walking up and you're getting there and all these people are coming, it was just electric. It was an amazing event, which you would have seen, you know, on the TV and uh, we had invited on the Thursday every single politician at Parliament House to come, and we had quite a number of people turn up except for the Liberal Party. They didn't turn up. At the, all. the coalition did not turn no, up. No one. Well, there might have been one or two people from but the back not, bench, yeah. but that was it, but no one of significance. Turned up. But we had Albo, Penny Wong, you know, all the people, the Greens, everyone of significance turned up because this was they were sitting, so they had to go back, but they came and listened to us. And we invited, um, you know, because the PM said, oh, you can come in and, you know, I've invited them to come and meet with me. Mm. And there was a whole lot of noise about that. Mm. But we said, firstly, there's a couple of reasons why we won't meet with the Prime Minister. One, how could two or three women possibly represent the entire, you know, country of women on this thing? Secondly, 15 minutes is not nearly enough to discuss an issue as weighty as this. Number three, we're not in it for photo ops, thanks very much. All right. Number four, it's probably not a good look for women to go behind closed doors in Parliament at the moment, right? So this is what we basically said. And as I said, people just turned up. It was electric. It, it really, I mean, we're now, we're featured in, you know, Annabelle Crabbe's misrepresented on the ABC. We actually are featured in episode two. I, I, when I watched it, I went, oh, my God, we have actually created some real momentum here. It was incredible. And uh, as I said, you know, just the, the the we had women who turned up who were in their 80s and 90s who were part of the women's movement in the 70s, right, who thought the women's movement had died. Mm-hmm. Um, we had young girls there, and I'm really proud to say at least a quarter of the people that turned up were men and boys. Mm-hmm. So, but here's something really interesting too, and I hope this is okay to share. When we were getting prepared, you know, obviously there's a lot of noise but we did get some calls from people who had worked in the, you know, in the feminist world. I mean, I'm a feminist, but had worked in, like, radical feminism and stuff. And, and look, they've done amazing work. But some of them got really cross at us because they said this was their space. And we've gone, what? What do you mean? Well, and anyway, I listened to them and 
I said, I understand why you might be frustrated. You've done all this work and we've just rocked up, you know, Johnny come lately and we've got this event and it's looking pretty epic. I'd imagine you'd be a bit frustrated. And I said, but can I explain our strategy to you? I said, the reason why when you look at the messaging, you may not see yourself in it is I'm not selling it to you. You've already bought this product. I said, I'm selling it to the big lump in the middle, the people that have been half asleep at the wheel, that haven't been paying attention to this. They're the people we want to get to march for justice. I want to actually bring men to this because if we can get good men helping us, then everyone's lives get better. And that's what it's about. And 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 they actually accepted that. They understood that. So I said, good strategy is what you leave out. I'm not trying to go splat. I've gone laser, but I've gone for the big lump in the middle. So apologies for not including you in that messaging or you seeing yourself in it. You are there, but you're already on board. I don't need to convince and persuade you. I've got to get this lot here. And we had so many women turn up to this event who'd never protested at anything in their life. And as I said, we got all these men to turn up and boys as well. So I thought my messaging was definitely hit the mark in Absolutely. terms of getting. And this is what's been very interesting. Denise will tell you, um, at I think QV, there's a boutique hotel in Canberra. You know, at the after the event, we all rocked up there. And here's the really funny bit. A lot of the women that rocked up there ended up or had, were campaign managers for the federal, uh, for the um, community-backed independence. And none of us knew we were going to be involved with that at the time. But so many of us who turned up were actually ended up being part of this community movement. What gave you the the strength or the um, the courage or or just that empathy or openness to decide to use what you've experienced, understand others' experience as well? And then actually try to say, look, the best solution here is to bring this out to the fore and to actually be really open about your experience and then to highlight what obviously tens or hundreds of thousands of other women have experienced too. Mm. Now, what, what led you to wanting to do that? Okay. Um, I, I was raised as a human first in my family. I was a teenager in the 70s and... When I found feminism in David Bowie, I thought my life had begun. Bowie, because of the beautiful creative expression and things like that, and I've been, as some people know, a Bowie tragic all my life, but also feminism because even though, um, because I grew up in a family that wasn't super religious, but we went to church, okay, and something inside me around the age of seven or eight, I couldn't tell you intellectually, it was just a feeling told me, and I don't look in, in many paths to enlightenment, but I was tuning into and picking up on the just the degradation of women, like the subjugation of women in in the Catholic Church. I just found the whole thing. It just I never could relate to it, and I couldn't wait to escape. I did it out of duty because that's what you did as a little child. You went to church, you did those things. But I constantly questioned. I think it's just my character, my nature as a person. To, to just to question things, not for the effect, but because I need to understand. I'm highly curious. And if it doesn't make sense, I will not actually buy it. I have to understand it. And if it feels wrong, so this is where 
You trust your instincts. If it feels wrong and you feel unsafe and your spidey senses are telling you to be wary, you should trust that. And I've been trusting my spidey senses ever since I knew I had spidey senses, if you see what I mean. And so that's made me a very good detective and unpicking these sorts of things. So I think it's my nature and my character. I mean, that first assault that I experienced was when I was walking to church one morning at sort of 7.30 because I wanted to get it out of the way so I could go play with my mates, right, and a man tried to abduct me off the street in his car. Now, the fortunate thing was is that two things. One, I knew to fight because when you're in a when you're in a threatened situation, you can fight, flee, if you can, and I did flee, I fought and fled, or you freeze. And this is the thing, I didn't freeze. Many women do because, but also too, I was an elite swimmer swimming 40 kilometres a week at 13 years of age. I was really strong. And so my dad's gift of sport to us and learning how to become very physically active and knowing my strength. And as a butterfly, I'm still a butterfly swimmer. So I'm really strong. So I don't know what it was that possessed me, but I beat the shit out of this guy. I really, I punched him and I then ran like the wind. Church was closest than home. I, so I don't know how I, I just did. That's what I did. And I ran to church and had, fortunately there was a family there. And I didn't, tell, I didn't tell anyone about this for years and years and years because what do you say? I mean, do you blame yourself? I mean, you don't know what to do, but at least, at least I fought my way out of it and then and saved myself. And from that moment on, my childhood ended and I became very alert and wary of danger. That was when my innocence, if you like, was lost in terms of because my family, you know, raised me in a really good environment and I learned things and I was, you know, given great opportunity and, you know, how do I do this? Like they never, they never said no to me in terms of my insatiable appetite for learning and growing and exploring. But this moment really fundamentally changed me and I became extremely wary. But I did not become subjugated. In fact, I became more emboldened not to let this happen to me again. So that's kind of my origin story in that. Um, And then through there, it wasn't that I came out aggressive or things like that. I learned how to be diplomatic, but I also learned how to say no, and I also learned how to defend myself, which is why my principal, who was a very good man at the end in my year, well, it was Form 6 then, said in my um, report or reference, whatever, um, amongst other things, Sue will not be bullied or tyrannised by prevailing views and attitudes. Look at it how you will. So then I've always stood up for people. If people have been affected by stuff or someone was being bullied, I would step in. I would say something. Um, I would challenge them. I wouldn't accept, you know, this sort of crap. And it didn't win you favours. I remember at the age of 15 in the cloakroom or the locker room, you know, having a bit of a chat to myself, I said to myself, I could dumb myself down and be popular or I could carry on my love of learning and standing up for things. And then I worked out that, you know, okay, I've only got a couple more years left at this school. I really love learning. I won't be, you you know, put down. I know what I'll do. So I chose a lonelier path. I didn't choose popularism. Mm -hmm. 
They just chose a lonelier path. However, March for Justice and Voices of Goldstein and, and Zoe Daniels' campaign, it's as if I had prepared my entire life for these events and I was so well-equipped and so ready to say yes to those things and absolutely give it a red-hot go with my professional experience, my life experience, my determination not to be taken for granted and subjugated and bullied into intimidation by these assholes. And so that's kind of summed up everything. I turned 60 last year, so it's kind of like a long-term project. <laughs> yeah, I've just turned 61 in early November and this year. So it's as if, um, you know, I've prepared my whole life for these major, you know, history-making events, really. And it feels like you've really built quite a crescendo in terms of this conversation. I'm, I'm sorry to kind of not just to sort of cheer and, and, and wrap it up or something, but you did touch on the voices of Goldstein and there's just such a building from the work that you did, you helped to lead uh, around the march, marches for justice. This is a really important point, has been a really important point in the evolution of the whole modern political Australian establishment. So can you just give us a, a little sense of, I mean, we, you, you touched on how you got into it, but building on, you know, how it came about, how you built from that, and, and then obviously, as you say, seeing Zoe Daniel as a number of independents uh, who occupying the role in parliament they now do. Absolutely, and um, because I'm very systems-oriented, if I can preface it by saying, so it, helps, it gives people some orientation, whether I'm working in businesses or now in these sort of community um, environments, I always think about our strategy, processes, people and culture, and I use those as my framework whenever I'm working because we've got to coordinate a system and we've got to have a compelling reason to want to go to market and a compelling, you know, reason for people to want to join something, whether it's a client wanting to buy from you or, in this case, communities wanting to get around something that will create change for all the right reasons. So when we got Voices of Goldstein together, it was basically a bunch of people who really wanted action on climate and integrity and equality. And so rather than just go and say, oh, here it is, let's go, we followed the, um, call it a recipe, from Cathy McGowan, who kind of laid the groundwork with her work in um, uh, when she achieved well, the unachievable, so to speak, in Indi in 2013 and flipped a very long-standing blue-ribbon conservative Liberal seat in, in, North, um, in regional, northern regional Victoria. And she won that. And then she won it again in 2016. And then she handed over the reins in 2019 to another community-backed independent candidate, Helen Haynes, and they won again. So there was this legacy, this sort of had created this momentum. So um, there was a lot of, you know, some early, early, you know, work that had been done. So we decided in Goldstone, as did a few other places, that we would have a crack at this. So we adopted the kitchen table conversation. Cool, it's market research. It's a, it's a way to get gravity and it's a way to listen to people because that's the thing. A lot of people are incredibly frustrated, not just here in Australia but around the world, with major political parties just assuming that they're born to rule and, of course, they'll be forever there, which, of course, they won't, and particularly if they don't listen to and engage with their communities. I mean, democracy is for the people, by the people. 
And these political parties have become their own little sort of, you know, orbits and they've forgotten about humanity. So we thought we might remind them, you know. So we went out and did all these kitchen table conversations, even with, you know, lockdowns. We had remote ones and stuff. We also made sure that our messaging was very clear about what we stood for. So a bit like March for Justice, we made sure that anyone coming to the website knew what this was for. It was for them and their voices to be heard. What we did was we got a lot of feedback from the kitchen table conversations and there was definitely an appetite for a community-backed independent candidate. So rather than just the few of us go off and find one, we then invited the community to tell us, what do you want in a candidate? What would a good one look like? We made it inclusive. We, they had a say. They actually, we, we defined 10 core qualities that we wanted people to have, or, you know, a candidate to have. And then I set about with um, our, um, I was chair of the selection panel, we created a selection process, a robust one. It wasn't going to be with nepotism. It was going to be very clear. We then started advertising around June. And we also had a lot of events as well. We had John Hewson come and speak. We had, you know, Zali Stegel come and speak. We had Kathy McGowan speak and Craig Rucastle speak. So we, we made it interesting for people to attract more people to come. So we ran events, you know, we did all the stuff you would do, you know, you talk to people. We did democracy walks. We even had a T-shirt. It was purple with gold writing. We felt like a violet crumble wearing it. But, you know, it was a, it had like our independence day is coming. And we would go out and do democracy walks and we created visibility because the number one job we had to do was capture share of mind first and then share of, you know, interest in this case. So we just went out there and people were going, what's that, what's that, what's that? And so when we started putting out an invitation and sort of advertising we were looking for a candidate, we actually ended up with 14 self-nominations, people actually putting their, you know, and we put them through a selection process. In about July... Angela Pippos, she, she was one of the original women in sports media, which, again, was a, it's very was very sexist, misogynistic environment as well. So she's a trailblazer. She tweeted me, here's Twitter again, she tweeted me saying, I'd like to speak to you about this candidacy. And I went, okay, I'm thinking, oh, Angela Pippos. So we had a chat, and she lives in Goldstein, but she said, so it's not for me. I reckon it's my best friend Zoe Daniel would be amazing. And, I mean, like I'm on the phone with, like, my mouth's open going, oh, my God, oh, my God, if we could get Zoe Daniel. And for those that don't know her, if you're listening, um, she was a former ABC foreign correspondent and, you know, lived and worked around the world. And for the final four years of her work at the ABC, she was the Washington bureau chief during the Trump years. I mean, she's got a brain on her like a planet. She has just got such an amazing coverage and knowledge of, you know, the world in all its forms. So Ange hadn't actually told Zoe yet. So I know, hilarious really, isn't it? So anyway, <laughs> so Ange convinced Zoe to have a chat with me um, in late July and we had a chat and explained to her what I've just explained to you and all the things we were doing. And Zoe said no. And I said, fair enough, it's a pretty tough gig, um, big decision, but I'd like to stay in touch. So if I can, I mean, you're a journalist, there could be a good story in this, let's just stay in touch. So I just stayed in touch and kept her up to date with what was going on. I mean, Zoe doesn't do knee-jerk, okay, and I just sort of lived in hope that maybe in staying in touch she might just come on board. Anyway, in late October, mid-October, we had a good candidate and I reached out to her one more time and said, listen, 
are you in or you're not? And she went, I'm in. I went, oh, my God. <laughs> so we put her through the process and, of course, she was outstanding and she agreed to be our candidate. And then the campaign team started to form and then she rang me and she said, listen, um, I need this, I need that. Actually, I need a Sue. Would you be my campaign manager? And I've gone, what? Because I've never run a political campaign in my life. But I thought, you know what? A political campaign is an on-the-ground, human-to-human sales-led campaign. That's how we're going to win it from a flat start. We're going to get out there. And we already had 400 volunteers from our Voices of Goldstein. So I thought, okay, that's my sales force. Okay, that's what we're going to do. So I went, okay, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I'm going to say yes. So I rang her back. I said yes. And so that's how we started. And we had a team of uh, 12 that got together, 10 or 12, and um, I'm glad to say that, you know, that beginning of November last year is when that team formed. Um, on the 27th of November last year, that was a Saturday, uh, we announced that we had a candidate. It kind of got leaked late on the 25th of November. But on that Saturday morning down at Sandringham, a rotunda, over 600 people turned up. It was amazing. That gave us a lot of hope, a lot of confidence that we were probably on the right track. And, of course, being in charge of merch, I was in charge of all the merch. I was like COO, head of PNC, product manager and national sales manager. That was kind of my roles as a, a campaign manager. Um, I I'd, I'd thought I'd broken the bank by buying 300 T-shirts, but we actually sold out of T-shirts in 10 minutes and someone dropped 10 grand on a T-shirt. I mean, and we had raised by Christmas $300,000 from the community wow. in one in four weeks. It was extraordinary. So I made sure that as a team that our ground game out there, visibility management, we were going to be all over the electorate, absolutely clear. So those 400 people from Voices of Goldstone, we invited them to. We didn't assume they would. We invited them if they'd like to volunteer for Zoe. Well, they all signed up, of course. And we ended up with a 1,500-person volunteer team of about 1,000 active volunteers that I was, you know, in charge of overall. I mean, we had lots of people and we had a good management structure. We had great advertising and media people on board who did incredible stuff. But we had an integrated systems-oriented approach and we basically were flying the plane, building the plane as we were flying it. And I remember on um, Thursday night before Election Day, I'm driving Zoe home from one of our hub events because we had all these hubs and lots of activities and things. And we were sitting there, you know, really looking at the final few days of our campaign. And she basically said, you know, you're responsible for all of this, don't you? I go, what do you mean? She goes, well, if you hadn't persisted back last year, I wouldn't be here. And I went, all right, Zoe, I'll take 100% responsibility for whatever happens, win or lose. And, of course, as you know, the rest is history. We actually won. It was just the most amazing surreal experience it was incredible so um you know it was a team effort everyone came together we had such an incredible gravity like we thought not over forty-four thousand homes we had people out doing you know zoe dog walks and runs and we had two and a half thousand signs up on fences we even won sign gate at the victorian supreme court when our opposition tried to take us out by saying what we had done is illegal so our first people power win was at the victorian supreme court back in the february and that was great and, and the irony is as much as they tried to dish us you know from the opposition basically that just added more grist to the mill and more visibility and more publicity and the more people came on board and even on the thursday night before the election someone dropped 19 grand into our donation box 
from Sydney. We raised, yes, there was Climate 200. People go, oh, yes, you know. Yeah, but they helped like seeding. They had no say in our campaign, but they were actually helping us create a level playing field. Total amount of money that we raised, $1.71 million, of which 450,000 of ish came from Climate 200. So that's still over a million dollars in our, you know, fundraising stuff. I mean, honestly, it brought so many people together. It was very levelling. There was no hierarchy. Yeah, you had people in charge of stuff, but the community, oh, my God, the community that we built. We still catch up. We have politics in the pub once a month now. We have hub meets. We do we do um, street meets once a month, obviously not as the intensity we did in the campaign, but I just loved the community. And, you know, when I said I was an outsider before, when I took the road less travelled and was an outsider, I'm now on the inside for all the right reasons and it's a fantastic feeling. Incredible, Sue. I, I wanted to touch on a couple of things. Like, I mean, you've, you've talked about ethics and ethical sales a few times and also you mentioned earlier about democracy and this idea of true democracy, not just putting your vote in but actually getting involved in... Um, you know, being and being a part of the change you want to see in the world. A lot of people that listen to Moments of Clarity want to find out how to activate, you know, not only activate what you feel and what you want to do, but figure out ways to actually go about transforming, I guess, the things you have influence over, the things you actually have control over in your life, whether that's personal or even beyond and um, wanting to change the community in, in different ways. What sort of strategies or tips do you have for people that, are listening to this and super inspired and saying, wow, so you've done so many amazing things. I, I, I've got so many ideas. I just don't know where to begin or what to do. What, what advice might you give those people? Okay, well, it's not to go splat. It's to go laser. Okay. So, but also to have a go at stuff. Remember what I said right at the start, I had no idea what I was meant to do and how I was meant to manifest my capabilities. So what I did was I just threw myself in and got jobs and I just learned. I learned what I liked. I learned what I didn't like. I tried stuff and I tried to study what I was doing to learn from it so I could keep doing it better and become more masterful at it. And even some of the stuff I didn't like, like many people, I didn't like prospecting. I found it scary, you know, but I learned how to do it and I actually learned how to make it my friend. So it wasn't that life served me up all sorts of, you know, easy opportunities. It's the gritty stuff. I mean, as a, as a competitive swimmer, swimming 40K a week, you know, for many, many years, you, it's a test of character. You know, you learn a lot about yourself. Um, yes, I was lucky to have family that actually provided those opportunities, but it wasn't easy. And I think, you know, not that everything should be hard, but if you want to go after something, you've got to learn it. You've got to master it. You've got to understand it. You've got to You've got to try it out and, and you've got to say yes to opportunity and be brave and be courageous, but not, not blindly optimistic and silly either. So you've got to use discernment. You've got to, the ability to judge well, but you've also got to take calculated risks. So if you come back and you want to try something, go for it, but, but give it a good shot. Like my children, I said to them, you know, everyone in our family learns a musical instrument but I'm not going to force you to practice every day, but you are going to learn it for at least five years, go to lesson once a week for five years, because I know at least you'll learn the basics of how to read music. You know, you'll learn how to play it. My children, my son, my younger son, he's now 19. He started at five playing the drums. He still plays the drums now, but I never forced them. 
I, I invited them. It's always invitational. But you've still got to have a go. It's like sport, you know, um, don't shortchange yourself or others. And be true to your word, you know. And if you can't say it, say you can't. Don't don't leave people hanging. So I think if someone wants to try something, go for it and have a go and get good support, find good tutors, good teachers, good coaches around that kind of stuff, learn how to master things, and then um, be interested in other people. That's the most important thing. If you're curious and interested in other people and you're good at listening and you're good at asking questions um, and you show care and consideration for people, it's amazing what you learn. But it's also amazing the fantastic feelings you have when um, you help people. We had an after party after Zoe's win on that Saturday night about a month later because we were all a bit buggered and we needed to have a rest and... And we got together, about 300 people turned up to that after party just to say hi, which is still pretty amazing, isn't it? Amazing. And I had so many people come up to me going, Sue, I have done things on this campaign I never thought I'd be capable of doing. Well, I've door knocked. I never thought I'd door knock in my life. I mean, talk about prospecting, right? And they said, I'm so proud of myself and I love door knocking. I get that just makes my heart sing that you show people what they are capable of doing if they were just prepared to have a go. So I invite people just to be adventurous and go out on a limb and try stuff. You don't have to jump off the edge, but at least have a look, <laughs> you know, and talk to people and and ask them and 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 step in and start engaging and listening and learning and collaborating and finding out what's possible. It's amazing. So many people I met in Voices of Goldstein who turned up and bought a T-shirt and come along to a little street, you know, walk we're going to do, they'd say, oh, I'm so nervous. I go, what are you nervous about? They go, oh, I've never done this before. I said, oh, just hang with me. I'll show you the ropes. And find people that show you the ropes. I had so, like those boys that lived next door were my big brothers. They showed me the ropes. They taught me about music. They taught me about all sorts of things. Honestly, I would have driven people nuts because I just would hang around them and try to learn as much as I could off them. You know, I mean, we didn't have the internet back then and stuff like that. So they were like my Wikipedias, you know, all these brave, amazing, intelligent, you know, the Hari Krishnas down at the beach. I'd be interviewing them and asking them questions and finding out what was about the age of, you know, when I was 10. I mean, I just am this insatiably curious, annoying person. And, but I, it's served me well. Absolutely, and uh, shame-free, that's what it's all about, isn't it, to be able to be that curious and um, be happy with it. And also, um, I know Toby's going to ask the last question and we're just about... Or you. Oh, you can. I've got one more before that. And also, um, I know we're almost out of time. Uh, Do you have a couple of minutes, Sue? I'm fine. Excellent. So I'm going to just reflect on something very quickly, which was the going back to that ethical sales. I constantly hear how amazing it is what you're discussing about all the great things that you can do by with this word sales, which I've always seen it almost as that dirty word of like, you know, what Maccas are trying to sell me on TV or, you know, whatever. But there's, there is so much. I mean, almost everything in life is is a, is a form of sales. You, you want to bring people along with you for all the great things that we see in the world as well as, you know, those negative ones. And I guess my reflection is just integrity and ethics in the long run seems to to win because you mentioned uh, the Liberal Party earlier and whether they were involved in the hack or not, but, you know, that you've got these 
um, hacks against a website, people that won't come out, you know, Scott Morrison and co won't come out to, to meet you. Tim Wilson wanting to ban the signs, you know, all of these ways of actually saying, no, we're going to try and get external forces to end this progress and all of a sudden people power wins and, and at the end of the day you activated people and, and it was unstoppable in the end. On that, you, you mentioned a few strategies to be that person but you've also written a book about gratitude, am I right, Sue? So yep. can you tell us a little bit about what gratitude has done for you and... and couple of the messages that come out from that from your book the origin of this idea of the book not that it was an idea at the time was 2014 two things happened one my father turned 80 and he had heart disease for a number of years and he um, collapsed a week after turning 80 and from heart failure and decided to turn off everything and within another four weeks he was dead um about a year or so earlier i had um knew that he was unwell. So I wrote him this letter, this six-page, A4-page, font, you know, 10-bullet-point letter of gratitude to my dad of all the things that I could remember that he did for us and that I enjoyed and, you know, and thanking him for being my dad, which he very much appreciated. In April 2014, when he collapsed, um, I also had a situation where a person who'd come into my business two years earlier turned out to be a rather scurrilous creature and took a $300,000 assignment I had won away from our business. And that year was just after Tony Abbott had become Prime Minister and business was really flat. Everyone was a bit like, oh, yeah, what's going on? There's no action or traction or anything like that coming. And so that meant business was a bit of a tough year for us. So when you're a small business and you lose $300,000, you know, it's not very nice because it's hard to pick up that quickly. But it also was just the betrayal. So I was pretty flat, as you'd appreciate, both with this person doing what he did. On one hand, I had a very scurrilous person. On the other hand, I had, you know, the role model of my life, my dad, very honourable person dying and then died. So I used all that information and I wrote a letter of gratitude as his eulogy, and which was very well received. And so picking myself up and my team were, you know, really strong, but I was really flat. One of my mates on, on um, Facebook um, not Twitter this time, but Facebook, had posted in July of that year a little exercise of writing three things you're grateful for for five days. Mine went for 142 days um, because that's what I needed to help me orient my, reorient myself to help me through. So um, I did that and then I stopped. I still am grateful for things and I actually have a history of writing letters of gratitude to people, but I didn't think any more out, other, out of it until... On October 2018, one Saturday morning, I woke up and went, I can write a book on gratitude. I don't know what possessed me, but I just said I can. So I went and gathered all those 142 days of gratitude and over a period of a week I wrote my book. And in that, basically, I, it was a personal reflection, so a bit of a personal memoir, a bit of self-help for people, but particularly what's important, it was underpinned by science and philosophy. And also gave some business and also showed the business case for how it helped me. So it's a bit of a, you know, generalist kind of book because that's how I roll. But I discovered upon reflection that and reading the research that if you get people to actually write down what they're grateful for, it really does help transform their thinking and how they operate and what they do, which is what had happened to me when I was practicing it 
as regularly and religiously as I did. I still practice it now, but I don't just have to do it every day. I mean, I can think of stuff, but this deliberation of writing down this stuff really transformed me psychologically and emotionally and also helped me see what was possible and see opportunity. There's also a moral case for gratitude. We're all interconnected. I mean, if you think about a clean glass of water that in our country, at least, we're very fortunate to be able to get access to on a daily basis, at least most of us are. And even if you are homeless, there are taps and things around, you know, public water. It's clean. Most people don't give one jot of thought about all the all the thought and all the work gone over decades, if not centuries, to create the infrastructure and the maintenance and support just to deliver us a clean glass of water. And when you start to look at the interconnectivity of us as humans and you look at all the things that we actually can take for granted, it's because of the kindness of strangers that we can exist, which is a Buddhist saying that is, but it's true. And you think about all the stuff that you have around you and you think about all of the opportunities that, you know, you get presented with. There's a lot to be grateful for. There's a lot of worry in the world, I understand, so I'm not being Pollyanna-ish about this. But I do think that practising gratitude stops us from, you know, being, you know, having a myopic selfie every day, you know. It allows us the opportunity to actually see the wonder and beauty in the world and truly appreciate what is actually there. Because back to that mindset piece, we can be very risk-averse and look at all the things that are dark and all of the things that make us, you know, bring us down because we are, you know, the grizzlies out there can really override the beauty in the world. So I use gratitude as a way of counterbalancing the negativity of the world. I use gratitude as a very humbling experience to remind me of all the wonderful things that many people and that nature does for us and that I should be very grateful for all of those sorts of things and make sure I treat them with respect and dignity and kindness. So um, that's kind of where I come from, from a gratitude perspective. Oh, thank you so much for that, Sue. And, and we're certainly very grateful for, for you giving your time and, and sharing your thoughts so articulately and interestingly. But before we let you go, we do have to ask the title of the show. When you reflect back on everything you've spoken about and I know that you've highlighted a number of moments but if you were to try to articulate a particular moment of clarity for you in terms of how all this has come about what has led you to these various transformational exciting moments how would you express that? There was always something in me that said you have to you have to be able to deliver something with your life. You have to be able to contribute in some way, shape or form. You're, you're capable, you're able, you know, you're reasonably smart, you're pretty handy, you know, you, you like a challenge. How can I bottle that up and serve the greater good? How can I do good work out there and still be commercially viable, still, you know, you know not be a burden on society, how can I bring all of that together and actually help people help themselves be more effective, more capable? I don't know. That's kind of who I am is just to, I don't know if it's the eldest child syndrome or something like that, but, you know, and it's, yeah, how can I be of best service 
to community and society as a whole. That's how I would sum it up. And I've just find, tried to find ways to express that. And, you know, some people aren't happy with me. Some people actually hate what I do because I, I call them out and I basically expose them. And I will continue to do that until the day I die. Because if it hurts and harms other people, uh, I will be calling it out as best I can. I'm not the only one, but I'm definitely, that's what I'm there to do. But I don't want it just to be to call people out for the bad stuff. I also want to be able to create the conditions for where we can really flourish and have mutually prosperous relationships and society. So, yeah, I, I am a bit idealistic, but I've also shown that you can actually practically deliver on this stuff if you know what you're doing and you find amazing people to work with and create community for all the right reasons. Oh, thank you, Sue. That, that was incredible. And, and this whole discussion has been um, really enlightening, inspiring, um, informative and on a practical level as well. And I know that's something that we both wanted to achieve at the end of this and I think it definitely has. So thank you so much for your time and for your for bringing us, I guess, uh, the gift of, of what you've experienced and the knowledge that you have um, throughout this conversation. So I appreciate it. We appreciate it. We appre- I, well, I just wanted you to let it. you um, talk about your appreciation. <laughs> and, um, and my gratitude. No, no, but Sue, thank you so very much. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you very much and, uh, yeah, onwards we press. Here we go. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity. If you are enjoying the podcast, there are a range of ways you can help us grow and continue to bring our conversations to you. If you haven't already, Please subscribe to Moments of Clarity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast player of your choice. This will ensure you never miss out on an episode. While you are there, you can leave us a review. It really does assist us in getting found by new listeners. However, the biggest way you can help us is to share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues and your social networks. We are hoping to build a community here at Moments of Clarity and want you, loyal listener, to help us build it. We would absolutely love to hear from you and always take the time to reply to your messages. You can get in contact with us on Instagram at Moments of Clarity Podcast, via our website, moc-pod.com, or email hello at moc-pod.com. Thanks again for listening to Moments of Clarity. See you next time.